Lord God, we do adore you. You are worthy of all praise and adoration. You are God, the creator, the giver of life, the sustainer of all things. God, you uphold the universe by the word of your power, and we praise you for what a mighty, awesome God you are. And we confess that we're not worthy. We're not worthy to come into your presence like this. We're not worthy of these precious brothers and sisters in this room. And we thank you that you have forgiven us of our sins through the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that by his work, we're invited into this fellowship with one another and, and the more incredible fellowship with our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you for that gift of grace. And I ask that as we look at your word, that truly our hearts would be stirred to praise you and worship you and adore you. God, I ask that you would do what only you can do, which is minister to hearts. Minister through your word. Change us, transform us, and move in this time for the glory of Christ. Amen. So uh, if you don't already have your Bible open to Revelation 19, please do that. And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one of ours on our little welcome table back here. We keep copies that we give away. So if you don't own a Bible, take one of those. You, you can have it. That's our gift to you. Or pull one up on your phone. That works as well. We have pushed pause on our series going through the book of Genesis together. If you were with us last week, I mentioned that for the last year, we've been slowly making our way through the book of Genesis, and we have decided to take a little bit of a pause in order to spend some time covering what we as a church have for our mission and our core values. Last week, we dove into this mission that defines our church, helping people meet and follow Jesus. That is our mission statement as a church. And today we're going to reflect on our core value, adoration. So I'm going to throw this slide up here so you can see what that core value says. Our value for adoration says that through worship, prayer, and generous hearts, we express awe for the glory of God. Through worship, prayer, and generous hearts, we express awe for the glory of God. These core values are listed on our website if you ever want to go take a look at them in more detail. But one way that we could summarize the story of Scripture, I mean, there's lots of different ways, and you heard me go through one recently, the redemptive historical narrative that Scripture is moving all of history towards redemption. There are many different ways we can summarize the teaching of the Bible, but one of them is to say that the Bible is a book about the glory of God. The Bible is a book about the glory of God. It teaches us about the glory of this God who is creator, Lord, Savior, Redeemer, the giver of life. Furthermore, Scripture tells us that God in his nature is good. He is eternal. He is wise. He is loving and gracious and kind. He is the origin of all truth, all beauty. And for all these things and so much more, as God's people, it is our joy to give God our, our adoration and our praise. And so as a church and as a people, as believers, as Christians, we exist to the praise of God's glory. The church does not exist primarily for you. 
We are not here as some sort of therapeutic group to make you feel better about yourself. We're not here to just give you good parenting advice or marriage advice or career advice. We're not here to teach you fundamentally and first and foremost good moral principles or to just kind of tickle your ears in the things that you hear. The church is here to, t- to make us as believers take our eyes off of ourselves and place them on this glorious God whom we adore. Now, you might wonder as you read this, why the word adoration? Like, who even uses that word anymore? Why not pick a word like praise or worship, which are much more familiar words? So I want to put the definitions of these words up here for you so you can kind of see. All right, hopefully we've got that slide. Praise is coming. There we go. And hopefully you can read that from wherever you are. Praise is defined as expressing warm approval or admiration of someone or something. And worship is defined as the feeling or expression of reverence. Now those are good words, and I'm actually going to use them kind of interchangeably throughout my message today to talk about how we come to God in adoration or praise or worship. But I don't think these words go quite as far as the word adore. We do praise God, but our relationship to God goes way beyond warm approval, right? You might have warm approval for your coworkers, but you don't adore them. And we do worship God, but worship is more than our feelings or our expression. Adoration, on the other hand, is defined as deep love and respect. From the deepest depths of our souls, our hearts, our very being, we direct our love towards God. And through adoration, we respect this God. We respect him by submitting to him as the highest authority, casting upon him our very lives in complete dependence and submission. To adore God is to give over to him all that you are, your very life, your very being, that he alone might be the object of all of your affection, all your desire, all your love. So you can go back to that other slide and we'll just leave that core value of adoration up there. And you'll see again that we define our core value in this way. Through worship, prayer, and generous hearts, we express awe for the glory of God. As a church, that is one of the things that we value. And I would hope that you as a Christian are like, yes, yes, I value that too. And I want to explain a couple of these words. First, the word worship in there, it means so much more than singing, right? We call these folks over here our worship team from time to time, or we say we're going to do worship now. But I, I hope that you do understand that worship is much more than singing songs. This is worship. Right now, as you sit under the teaching of God's Word, you are engaging in worship. We are worshiping through the proclamation of the truth of God's Word. As you serve, whether that be here on a Sunday morning formally or loving one another, making meals at home, whatever things that you do to serve the body of Christ or serve other people, that's worship. That's a part of our adoration. Fellowship with one another. When you gather together, 
and you share your joys and struggles with your brothers and sisters in Christ, that fellowship is a form of adoration to God. Adoration is a way of life, and it incorporates worship into everything. Now, prayer is present in this core value because through prayer, we intentionally place ourselves into the presence of God where we come face to face with him in all of his glory. And then the reference to generous hearts is not meant to point to financial generosity, although that may be an aspect of it. But we're talking more here fundamentally about adoring our God and giving ourselves over to his kingdom, holding nothing back from him as we give ourselves to him and seek his glory. Okay, so with that kind of foundation in mind, let's read our text again from Revelation 19, starting in verse 1. Man, and if this does not just move your heart to look forward to what God has in store for those who trust him, well, I'll tell you what that means later. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, which just means praise God. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." So from this text, I want to outline for us, one, what adoration is, two, why we adore God, and then three, what our adoration accomplishes. So one, what adoration is, two, why we adore God, and three, what our adoration accomplishes. But before that, I need to make you just aware of something. Um, at present, as Christians, we are engaged in many things, aren't we? In our pursuit of Jesus, we're called to pray, we're called to hope, we're called to wait upon the Lord. We are engaged in spiritual warfare as we pursue Jesus. We have to hold fast to God in faith through trials and difficulties. We seek to proclaim and preach the gospel of grace to an unbelieving world. But in this scene from Revelation 19, which is a peek into the eternal realm of heaven, I mean, this is beautiful because we are being given sort of a trailer, if you will, of what eternity will look like. And in this picture, the saints are engaged in none of these things. There's no prayer. There's no hope. There's no waiting. Don't you see most of the things that define the Christian walk in this life? 
they're going to fade away in eternity. Faith, hope, sanctification, self-discipline, all those things that you're hopefully getting really good at right now, gone in eternity. But one of the things that we are learning to do right now that will last into eternity is our adoration for God. Adoration is the religious exercise of heaven. It is the expression of God's saints for eternity. Hopefully there won't be any flies when we're there. (laughs) But this life, with its trials and sufferings and sanctification and prayer, it's going to pass away. It's going to be no more, my friends. But the adoration for God that we express now is going to pass with us from this life, through the veil of death, into the life everlasting. And so it is good and right for us as believers to learn now that language of worship and praise because we're going to use it forever as we gaze upon God's glory in the kingdom yet to come. So what exactly is adoration? Well, adoration is reverent, dependent, submission to God from the heart. Adoration is reverent, dependent, submission to God that is heartfelt, comes from the heart. Adoration is awe of God that touches the very core of who we are, which we in the 21st century would say is our heart, or maybe another word would be our soul, but it is heartfelt. And I would say then that because adoration touches our hearts, it is emotional, therefore, It's an an expression of the affection that is present in our hearts. You cannot adore something if it doesn't captivate your heart. Which is why when God makes us his, he gives us what? A new heart. A new heart with right affection that actually loves him. And we see the emotional nature, I think, of this adoration in our text when we're told about this great multitude of saints and angels and they're in heaven and they're crying out. Crying out is emotional language and they fall down before him in reverence. In verse 6, we're told that they raise their voices together in a song of praise that rivals the roaring rush of rapids and the booming noise of crashing thunder. This is not a multitude merely praising God with warm approval, like praise said, or passing admiration that's kind of felt now and then fades shortly after. These are the actions of a people who are overwhelmed by the glory of this God that they praise. The heavenly host of saints and angels, they are swept up into the heights of God-given emotion as their souls reverberate with God's love. Adoration grips the heart. It stirs the soul. And what I'm trying to do in making this point is to prevent us from making the error of believing that adoration is merely an exercise of the mind. Think about God in all of his glory and then that's it. Adoration is a passion of the heart. If contemplating God's glory does not stir your heart to adore him and lead you to rejoicing, then you're probably dead. 
But adoration is also thoughtful. Let's not make the error of going to the other side that what we're chasing is some emotional high in adoring God. Adoration is not merely passionate love for God. It is also an intellectual act of the mind. Both of these things are brought together in our adoration, zeal and knowledge. Notice verse 2, where the great multitude in heaven cries out in praise to God and gives him praise. Why? Because his judgments are true and just. Truth and justice, I think, are primarily subjects of the intellect. They touch on the mind. And when we set our minds upon God to think about him, to think rightly and truly about him, then I think we're drawn into adoration. How could you not be? God is the source of all truth. It all points back to him. And he is worthy of all praise because where legal scholars and politicians might fail to create a system of just laws because of how broken this world is, God in his perfect intelligence and wisdom and justice will bring perfect justice to all of human history at the consummation of all things. And so, in adoration, we find the whole person engaged. We find the heart and we find the mind, both emotion and intellect. And it just so happens that these two things work together, right? Because when we rightly adore God, then the mind is speaking truth to the heart and it increases praise to God. And the heart stirs the mind in its passion for truth, which is found in God. And so zeal and knowledge then in our adoration come together like rocket fuel to press us to ever higher heights of praising this God. Now one more quick point here on what adoration is. Adoration is responsive. Adoration is a response. The multitudes in heaven are praising God as a response to what God has accomplished. And this never begins with us. Adoration does not begin with you, contemplating you. It begins with God and who he is. In the context of Revelation, we didn't read chapter 18, but what's taking place in chapter 19 is that God has judged the systems of this world summarized in this term Babylon, and God has brought Babylon crashing down to ruin. In the book of Revelation, Babylon represents the kingdoms of man, the things in which men glory, the things in which men falsely set their hopes and expectations, the things which men in this world adore, wealth and power, comfort and self-glory, achievement sexual perversion, vanity, violence, opposition to God. And the saints are giving adoration and praise to God in response to the fact that he has turned Babylon into a smoldering ruin. He's brought it crashing down. And if you find it hard to give God your adoration then you're probably not setting your eyes on the right thing. You're not looking to see who this God is and what he has accomplished so that you might respond to him in awe. And of course, first and foremost, 
What would it be that we would respond to God in awe for? It would be the cross, right? Where God showed his truth and justice by punishing sin. And he did that in a great act of grace by putting the punishment for our sin upon his own son. And if your heart does not respond to the cross in adoration for God, then you're probably dead. And this brings us, I think, to the second question from our text. Why do we adore God? Some people adore other people for the kinds of things that, you know, humans do. Beauty, intellection, their athletic ability, the music they make, the speaking skills they have. But why do people adore God? Why should we submit to Him and let our hearts be drawn to Him in love? Well, as I just said, adoration is responsive. So we adore God in response to two things, okay? First, we adore God for what He has done. This should probably be review for most of you. God is the maker of all things. And for that, He is worthy of all praise. Have you ever seen a beautiful sunset? God did that. He made that. Or what about the peaceful innocence of a newborn baby? Somebody was just showing me a picture this morning of a newborn baby. Beautiful, innocent face. Or what about any of the Hubble Space Telescope photos or the new James Webb Space Telescope photo? You seen any of those? God did that. How could your heart not be moved to adore Him for what He has done? What about friendship? You ever experienced precious friendship? Or what about the thrill of accomplishment? God made that. You ever watched one of our dust storms blow in and been both sort of like frustrated but also in awe? Or walked through a forest and seen the light play off of the leaves and shine down onto the forest floor? God is worthy of all the adoration of our hearts because all of these things came from his mind. He thought them up and he pieced them together and he sustains them now every minute of every single day. God did that. And when man plunged God's creation into sin and evil, God didn't abandon us, though that's what we deserved. Instead, he sent his own son down into this mess to redeem us. God is deserving of all praise because His righteous Son, who was perfect in glory, died for us sinners. And through that death, God poured out His love upon us. Undeserving people though we are. And that's all reflected here in our text from Revelation 19. Look at verse 1. The saints proclaim salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And then in verse 5, the voice from the throne declares, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. And as we contemplate what God has done in Revelation, we're told that God is worthy of our adoration because at the very end of this human story, God is victorious. 
Verse 6 says, the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Not political parties, not billionaires, not social movements. God Almighty reigns. For the Christian, all is adoration because all is triumph. Jesus even now reigns triumphantly. We may not yet see Christ seated on his throne with all dominion and all authority, but we do know that even now he reigns now and forevermore. And so we give to this God our worship, our praise, our adoration, all of the reverence and devotion of our hearts because his is the victory. So we praise God for what he's done from creation to salvation, to his reigning exaltation. But even if God had done none of those things, do you understand that God would still be worthy of all adoration simply by virtue of who this God is? All creation will praise him. All people will bow before him because of who he is. Now look, we really can't divorce from God the things that he does And who he is, God does what he does because of who he is. We as people make excuses all the time that like, I did that, but that's not really me. Okay, that doesn't work with God. You can't say that God does something that's different than his nature. It's all wrapped up together. But if you could press past all the benefits that we've received from God because of what he has done you would find there an even more glorious height from which to adore this God. And that is simply for who he is. Right? If you think his creation is beautiful, think about the creator who made it. If you think friendship is wonderful, think about the God from whose mind that concept came. C.S. Lewis tries to kind of get us to this point when he reminds us that if you, let's say, receive a gift from your spouse, you would be a fool to adore the gift more than you adore the one who gave you the gift, right? The glory is not found in the gift, it's found in the person who gave it to you. God's actions towards us are most glorious because they reveal to us the nature of the character of this God who gives them. And we should give God the adoration of our hearts for who he is because he is glorious. Why has God given us the gift of grace? The gift is what we receive. What does it tell us about the giver? That he's gracious, that he's loving, that he's kind and merciful. In Revelation 19, why has God defeated Babylon and cast her down for her iniquities? What does that tell us about the one who gave the gift of justice? Well, that he judges rightly. That what he does is true. That he is just. Why did God make the universe in all of its beauty and complexity with everything that it contains? What does the gift of this creation tell us about the one who gave it? That he's powerful, that he's generous, that he loves to give. He delights in sharing himself. 
God is worthy of all praise because His very nature is the most excellent of all things. We adore God because He is the fountainhead from which all truth and wisdom and goodness and beauty flow. Yes, we praise God for His gifts, but the gifts flow to us from the hand of God because in His nature, God is self-giving. And so simply because of who God is, we adore Him. And this is why our adoration of God will never cease. Because God will never stop being who He is. Thank God that you and your nature are changeable. Right? Thank God that one day who you currently are will cease. But adoration will go on forever and ever because the nature of this God will never change and never cease. He will never stop being who He is. And He'll never stop doing what He does. Giving, loving, inviting, showing hospitality. And so for all eternity, we will receive more and more love for God. And for that reason, our praise and adoration will ever increase to this God. Our delight in Him will never grow cold because the fountain of His love for us will never run dry. Now the last question I want to explore is this. What does our adoration accomplish? And it's a question worth asking here because we could make an error. God has done great things, and God has done those great things because He Himself is great. And we dare not make the mistake of thinking that by adoring Him, we add anything to His greatness. By heaping our praise upon this God, we don't make Him more glorious. That would be to take our eyes off of Him and set them on ourselves and think about what do I bring to the equation Even the voice of this great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out glorious praise to this God, even that does not add one ounce of glory to who this God is. And yet, this is how it should be. This is how the people of God should respond to who God is and what He has done. This is the purpose for which you were made. To adore this God for all eternity. I I hope that you understand that your deepest joy, your deepest contentment is wrapped up in understanding that truth. For what purpose were you made? You were made to adore God and to give Him glory through your life and existence for all eternity. And if you want to find joy and you want to be satisfied, that is where you will find it. Giving adoration to God is what we should do because that's the purpose for which we were made. Now, it's like a mirror. If you hold a mirror up to the sun, the mirror reflects the greatness of that sunlight, does it not? So much so that if you were to look into that mirror, you would be very sorry. You would be blinded by the light that you see there. It would burn your eyes. And yet, you know, don't you, that the mirror does not add a single drop of brightness to the sun. 
The mirror does not contribute to the light of the glory of the sun. All of the light of the sun is contained in itself. But the mirror does what a mirror should. It reflects that image. Or if a woman looks into a mirror and she sees her own image, the mirror does not add anything to her beauty, much to the disappointment, I'm sure, of many of us. But the mirror does not add to the beauty of the image, but it reflects back the beauty that is already there. And so it is with our adoration of God. It is good and right that we should adore Him and give back to Him the praise that He is due. But we dare not think that if we were to withhold our adoration, that God's glory would be diminished. That's not how this works. And we dare not think that by worshiping Him and praising Him and loving Him that we add anything to Him. If heaven were silent and the saints were not to give God this praise, still God would be the perfection of all beauty. If if the heavenly host ceased singing His praises, it would not diminish His glory at all. But our adoration does accomplish something. What does it accomplish? It accomplishes something in us. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says, The multitudes declare, or I'm sorry, that's what happens. The multitudes declare and they say, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. In looking to God and giving him the exaltation and the glory that he rightly deserves, in adoring him the way that we were made to adore him, what does God do in response? God grants us the gift of holiness. Do you see? Verse 8, it has been granted to us, the bride of Christ, the church, to wear fine linen, bright and pure. That image of fine linen, white linen, bright and pure, it is symbolic of the holiness of God himself. And verse 8 tells us that that holiness that we as the saints are granted to wear, it is, it's, it's given to us. It's not something that comes from us. It's a gift. But now look at the end of verse 8. What does it say? For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That is, that these garments of holiness are the lives that we live. The lives that we are currently living now. And verse 7 ends by telling us, that the bride has made herself ready. That is that we've chosen to put on these garments of holiness that God himself has prepared and made for us to wear. We're granted the gift by grace, and so then we labor to put it on. Both of these things are true. It's like what Ephesians 2 says, 
that we've been saved by grace through faith. This is not our own doing. It's a gift from God so that no one may boast. Many people know that verse, Ephesians 2, 9 or 8 and 9. But they stop there and they forget about verse 10, which tells us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that tells us that as we behold the glory of God and we adore Him for who He is and what He has done, we are being transformed through that adoration into the very likeness of who He is. Transformed into greater holiness and righteousness. And so we give God the adoration that He deserves because it's good for us to do that. That's what we were made to do. But also because in doing so, we grow to be like Him. Like the mirror reflecting back the light of the sun. And that life of adoration purifies us. In this mysterious relationship of God's grace and our faithfulness, for who He is and what He has done, we are transformed in ever greater degrees as we actually put on the robes of holiness that were prepared by God for us to wear. And we've been granted to wear those robes as we adore this God. I think I can actually say it very simply, and maybe you're like, thank God, because you were making it more complex than it needed to be. If you long to be like God, the best place to start is to turn your heart to Him in adoration. Think upon His glory. Because in that attitude of submission and dependence, that attitude of awe and praise, God's love is going to triumph in your heart and it's going to shape you into the image of Christ. It's actually quite simple. How much of our disobedience, how much of our discouragement, how much of our frustration as Christians is born out of simply failing to keep our eyes fixed on Christ and adore Him for who He is? when we lose sight of His wisdom, His beauty, His goodness, when we stop reflecting on Him, then that's when we lose our way, isn't it? And when we rejoice in Him, we're made to be like Him and our hearts grow to love Him evermore. So, to sum it up, we adore God with our hearts and our minds, emotionally and intellectually. That is a response to Him for who He is and what He has done. And as we adore Him, that leads to our sanctification and we are changed to be like Him in His holiness. Let's pray. God, we do thank You for the body and blood of Jesus Christ. What God is like our God, so deserving of all praise and worship and adoration, creator, life giver, sustainer, redeemer, everlasting King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet in all of that so humble to become a man, to suffer like we suffer, to be tested like we're tested, to shed His blood and die that sinners like us might be redeemed.
God, we adore you. In Christ's name, amen.